More than ever, it seems we are constantly bombarded, sometimes even drawn in, by the never-ending conflict and despair towards the future. As followers of Jesus, we press through the difficulties because there is a promise and a hope for the future. But what about those who don't know that hope? How can we live out the promise of the coming kingdom in our present moment with those around us? All right, well, good morning. How's everyone feeling today? Feeling okay, all right, great. It's good to see you. It's good to be back with you. It's actually been a few weeks since I've had a chance to uh, be up here teaching with you guys, and so it feels good to be back with you. It feels great to see all of you who are in the room and those of you who are joining online as well. I just want to reiterate something that Tracy said just a moment ago, and that is that if you are a guest here, so if it's your first time at Grace Church or it's your first time back in a while, uh, we just want to extend a very special welcome to you. And uh, thanks so much for being our guest. We're glad you're here. Uh, But I do just want to tell you that if it is your first time here or it's your first time back in a while, you are catching us today at the end of a sermon series that we've been in for the past five weeks together uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So just to kind of help you out, to let you know what we've been doing, this series has been very straightforward. Uh, What we've been doing is simply this. We have just been going chapter by chapter through this incredible book in the New Testament, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so as we've been working our way through this book, we are going to find ourselves today in the final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so I would love just from the right right from the beginning, if you would grab your Bibles and you would join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, that's where we're going to be spending our time today is uh, is looking together at this passage. The, the passage that we find here uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you did not bring a Bible of your own, that's no problem. You can use one of the Bibles under the chairs if you'd like to. You're gonna find 1 Thessalonians 5 in, on page 958 in those Bibles. And uh, we say this all the time, but if you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take one of those, make that a gift, and we'd love for you to have a Bible. I think it's important that you have one. So 1 Thessalonians 5 is where we're gonna go. All right, so um, last week, if you were here, uh, you might remember that we were in, so this week we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, so last week we were in 1 Thessalonians 4, right, very good, and then, uh, last week, Pastor Seth actually did a phenomenal job walking us through 1 Thessalonians 4, and what we found was that the topic of 1 Thessalonians 4 was all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So last week, we started this conversation about the return of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Seth did a phenomenal job, but this was the passage that we left off with last week, okay? So you're gonna see a a continuation of this topic this week, but this is what we saw last week. Here's what the Bible says. It says, for the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, And after that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this is a magnificent passage. This is a perplexing passage. Uh, This is a passage that is a puzzling passage to a lot of different people. But here, what it's talking about, it's, it's talking about what is sometimes called the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Seth kind of talked about this last week, but um, I think whenever we talk about this topic, that is the the return of Jesus, I think that it it tends to elicit really one of two responses in most people. Uh, For some, uh, when we read stuff like this, we are just 
utterly fascinated, right? We just become really, really interested. We want to know more. We want to dive in deeper. We want to get into the details. We start to want to get fixated on what exactly does that mean and what exactly is that going to look like? So for some of us, this is extremely fascinating. For others of us, quite honestly, it weirds us out a little bit. Right? We talk about the idea of Jesus coming back. Uh, for some of us, it sounds kind of wacky. Uh, for some of us, maybe we've been part of churches or we've seen churches that this actually carries a lot of baggage. There's been some really weird things that have come as a result of the teaching on this topic. But here's what I'm hoping that we're going to see today, and, and Pastor Seth actually talked about this quite a bit last week, is that there is, um, according to the Bible, there is absolutely no question about the reality of the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament of the Bible, get this, there are 318 references in the New Testament of the Bible to the return of Jesus Christ, which means this, that one out of 13 verses in the New Testament of your Bible is going to talk about the reality that this is going to happen, that Jesus Christ will return. Jesus himself said that he would. Peter, Paul, James, John, all the New Testament authors testified that Jesus Christ will return. So here's the point. Anyone who takes the Bible seriously, and specifically anyone who takes Jesus seriously, has to take this serious as well, that this is a well-attested biblical uh, uh, reality that the Bible says that Jesus will come again. So it, when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to continue talking about this topic, the return of Jesus Christ. And here's what I, I, I want to invite you to see today. In the passage we're going to look at, I think the Apostle Paul is going to show us three things, three things about the return of Christ. And here's what we're going to see. I'm just going to tell you where we're going to go, and then we're going to go there. So here's what we're going to see. The day of the Lord, first off, we don't know when it's coming. Okay, we don't know when it's coming. But we know that it's coming. So we live in light of its coming. Right, very, very simple. I think you see this passage. The day of the Lord, we don't know when it's coming, but we know that it's coming. So what do we do? We should live in light of its coming. All right, so I want to walk through those three things. Before I do that, though, I actually want to take just a moment, and I want to talk about this phrase right here, the day of the Lord. So I want you to notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. So look with me at verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates. Now, remember, he's talking about the return of Jesus. He says, about the times and the dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the, now look at this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I want to just take a moment and explain this phrase. Okay, so in chapter four, the apostle Paul is talking about the return of Jesus. When you get to chapter five, it seems that the apostle Paul uh, ties this idea of the coming of Jesus to something he calls the day of the Lord. Now, here's why that's significant. This is not just a phrase that the apostle Paul made up. This is a, a very rich and a very significant and a very biblical phrase that is used. The day of the Lord is actually something that is referred to all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what exactly is the day of the Lord? Okay, so here's what I wanna do. I just wanna give you a definition, a biblical definition of what the day of the Lord is. And I'm gonna warn you, the definition I'm gonna put on the screen is very technical. Okay, so this is kind of a scholarly definition, but after I show the, the scholarly definition, I'll tell you why that, how that impacts the passage that we're reading. So here's a scholarly definition. Uh, the day of the Lord, it's also called the day or that day, you'll, you'll find it all throughout the Bible, is a phrase that refers both to the ultimate time when Yahweh, who's the God of Israel, when God will punish and restore the whole world through Christ's first and second comings and to the periodic penultimate days that clarify and anticipate it. 
Unrepentant sinners should fear the day of the Lord, but those forgiven and redeemed can anticipate it with hope. Now, that's a mouthful. Like I said, it's a little bit of a technical definition. But for our purposes, the passage that we're reading today, here's the best way to understand the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is talking about a future anticipated time in which God is going to personally intervene in history. He will personally intervene, delivering both the redemption of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. Okay, so this is a day where where God will intervene and there will be both redemption and there will be justice. Both of those things are gonna happen on that day. Now, uh, like I said, you guys, this day is anticipated all throughout the scripture. This is just a sampling of places that you will find it. Old Testament and New Testament, it speaks about the day, this day, the day that is coming. And so what we're gonna see in the passage is the apostle Paul is going to tie the coming of Jesus with what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. So here's the question then. What do we know about this day? What do we know about this day? Well, let me tell you one thing we know for certain about this day. One thing we know for certain is this, that we don't know when it's coming. So what do we know for sure about the day of the Lord? We don't know when it's coming. So so look with me at what Paul says again in verse one. So Paul says to this church, he says, now brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, that is, in other words, the location on the calendar when this is happening, he says, we don't need to write you about that. He says, we don't need to write you. Now, why is it that he doesn't need to write them? Well, he says this. He says, because you guys already know, you know very well that this day is gonna come like a thief. So Paul basically says, I don't need to write you about the days and the times. Why is that? He says, because you already know that this day is gonna come like a thief. Now, here's a very uh, simple question. Uh, if, Paul, if Paul says, you already know, how did they already know? How did they already know that this day was gonna come like a thief? Well, I think the easy answer is this. Most likely, the apostle Paul already told them. So he probably already talked about this. You know, the apostle Paul was the one who planted this church and he probably told them, hey, this day is gonna come. Jesus is gonna come back. We don't know when it's gonna happen. It's gonna come unexpectedly. It's gonna be like a thief uh, that comes in the night. But he- here's what I want you to know. It wasn't just Paul who said that. We actually know in scripture that Jesus Christ himself said the same thing. Uh, In fact, let me show you one passage. This is in Luke chapter 12. Here's what Jesus said about his return. He said, you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus says, it's gonna be unexpected. It's gonna be a surprise to you. Listen, Jesus, Paul, also Peter. So the apostle Peter, he says this in 2 Peter chapter three, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's gonna come like a thief. That is, it's gonna come unexpectedly. You're not going to be anticipating it. So I want you to, just to review, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and John in the book of Revelation, they're all gonna say that this day is gonna come unexpectedly. It's going to come like a thief. Now, I think the reason the biblical authors have to keep emphasizing this is because ever since the moment that Jesus first told his disciples that he was going to return, even up to this day today, the, the question that most people who follow Jesus become obsessed with initially is when. He's coming back, when? And so we, we want to know the details of the times and the dates and how it's gonna happen and what it's going to look like. And the biblical authors are all very clear, look, it's gonna be a surprise. Look, we just don't know. We don't know. I actually really like the way uh, some of you guys have heard the message. Uh, The message is not a Bible translation. It's a Bible paraphrase. But I like it sometimes because it kind of puts things at a street level. And here's what uh, the message says. I think this is is really great. It says this uh, about 1 Thessalonians 5.2. 
You know as well as I that the day of the master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. And uh, that made me chuckle when I read it. But I thought, that's a good point, isn't it? Like, thieves don't make appointments, right? You don't get a call from a thief who's like, hey, I was thinking about robbing you next Tuesday. Would that be a good time for you to not be around? Like, it doesn't work that way. And I, I just think it's a really good point that he's making. So in other words, I think, I think what, what the Apostle Paul is saying, what the Scripture is saying, is that it's useless. It's useless for us to speculate. I think what's happening is Paul is actually trying to help this church resist the temptation that's been present in the church for centuries all the way up to this day. And what is that temptation? To become obsessed with trying to figure out the time and the date of Christ's return. You know, it's interesting, just in my uh, study for this message over the past couple of weeks, I just real quickly just kind of looked over church history. And I was curious about the amount of times that people have set dates and said, this is when Jesus is going to come back. And everyone put their hope in it and believed in it and they ended up being wrong. And you guys, in my quick study, I found easily over 50 examples of times that this has happened, where people have said, this is when Jesus is coming back, and they were wrong, and they were wrong. And you guys have probably heard about that stuff, but let me just give you a few examples. So here's one. In 500 AD, there's actually three prominent church leaders who anticipated and predicted that Jesus was going to come back that year in 500 AD. Now, what's fascinating is if you look at how they got that date, Uh, Basically, it was based off of a weird interpretation of the dimensions of Noah's Ark. And so they thought, if you look at these dimensions of Noah's Ark, there's like a secret code in there. And if you decode it, it tells us that Jesus is coming back in the year 500. Well, of course, they were wrong because that year came and that year went. How about this one? Uh, The next one is uh, in February 20th, 1524. So a German mathematician, Johannes Stoffler, was a guy who claimed that Jesus would return on that date due to a planetary alignment. And so he believed in uh, his interpretation of the Bible. This was based on something called the millennium, which is talked about in the book of Revelation. So he thought that that's when it would take place. Bunch of people rallied around that date, were preparing for that date. That date came, that date went. He was wrong. Uh, This one, by far the most bizarre, I think. Uh, In 1806, there was uh, the prophet of Leeds, which was actually a domesticated hen, that's correct, a chicken, all right, was allegedly laying eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. And some of you are like, that's supposed to, are you supposed to put an H in there, like Christ? Nope, that's what was on the eggs. Christ is coming. So apparently eggs don't have spell check. And uh, so, of course, it ended up, you can imagine, it was all hoax. But a bunch of people freaked out, thought Jesus was coming back. They thought this was a sign end up being a hoax, and it's actually a very disturbing hoax. The, um, the owner of the hen was writing this message on these eggs and then reinserting them into the... To, so, I'm sorry to put that picture in your mind. I can't make this stuff up. It's creepy. It's messed up. All right, so uh, how about this one? September 11th to 13th, 1988, NASA engineer and Bible student Edgar C. Wistinant published a book that was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Well, of course, that day came and went, and so in 1989, he published another book called 89 Reasons That Christ's Rapture Happened in 1989. And that's not even a joke. That's true. People bought that book, which is insane to me. Of course, one of the more famous ones you guys know about, Y2K. A lot of people said Jesus was going to be coming back on Y2K. I go on and on and on. The list could go on of people who have said, this is when Jesus is coming back. This is why we believe he's coming back, and they were wrong. 
and they were wrong. I, I just have to admit to you, to my, kind of to, um, to my own discredit, I actually spent probably more time researching this than I care to admit. I kind of fell down the spiral on this one, and I just got really interested, and I was like, I wonder when the next claim of Jesus' return is going to be. And so I looked into it. You guys want to know when it is? I thought this was interesting. Someone is claiming that Jesus is going to come back on October 31st, 2024. And so I thought, ooh, Halloween. It's like, that would be, that'd be spooky. Jesus came back, right? I actually thought, this is a side note, I actually thought it'd be so funny if Jesus came back on April Fool's Day. That would be the best. That would be the best. But here's the point. The point is, we don't know. The Bible is very clear. And so anyone, anyone who tells you that they know when Jesus is coming back is at best sorely misinformed and at worst is a fraud and should never be trusted. Jesus Christ himself said, we can't. He told the first disciples, we don't know. We can't know. So here's what Jesus said. He said to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority. In other words, Jesus says, it's none you. It's none your business when I'm coming back. He said this in Matthew 24, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels nor the son. Jesus, and I'm just saying, if Jesus is saying that is information that I am not privy to, then I think we're wasting our time if we're obsessing over those things as well. So I think this is why the apostle Paul says, I don't need to write you about these things. I don't need to write you. Why does he say that? Because I think what Paul is saying is this, you are already sufficiently informed. God has told you what you need to know about this day. And what you need to know is that you don't know when it's going to take place. You don't know when it's gonna happen. And I know for some people, um, for maybe for some of us, that's really frustrating. It's frustrating because we just really wanna know. We really wanna know. But can I just tell you that I think if you really think about it, it's not, it's not really all that frustrating. It's actually in a lot of ways very liberating. It's very liberating. And why is that? Because I believe that God is helping us by assuring us that we don't need to concern ourselves or spend all of our time reading the tea leaves or the headlines or numerology or decoding horoscopes. We don't have to spend our time doing those things because he has told us that it's going to come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen. So the truth is about the day of the Lord, we don't know when it's coming, but here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. We know that it's coming. We know that it's coming. It's interesting, if you look back at verse one, in the very same breath that the apostle Paul says, it's gonna be like a thief in the night, He also says, this day will come. It will. There is certainty. You see this with the other biblical authors. Look what Jesus says. Jesus says, the son of man will come. He will. There's certainty. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. It will. There is certainty behind the reality that Jesus will return. I think this is why in uh, verse three, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse three, he says, uh, while people are saying peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, you followers of Jesus are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So notice what he says. He says, listen, to those who follow Christ, we don't know when it's gonna happen, but we know that it's gonna happen. And so we're not surprised. We're not surprised when when it takes place. So because we know that it's gonna take place. But here's what's interesting. And in the same set of verses where the apostle Paul says, those who follow Jesus, this day should not surprise us. He says that there will be a certain constituent of people who are going to not see this day coming. They're gonna be caught off guard by this day. So look what Paul says here. He says, there's gonna be people that this day is gonna come suddenly. 
It's gonna come while they're saying peace and safety, while they're saying peace and safety. Now, I wanna just take a second and I wanna just explain the significance of this phrase right here, peace and safety. Some of you might see that that is in quotation marks while some of you are saying peace and safety. Um, and uh, the question is why? What is it that Paul is quoting from? So here's what I'm convinced of. I, I believe, and uh, most commentators would agree with this as well, and what the apostle Paul is doing is he's actually quoting from a phrase that would have been used in a highly subversive way. This was a phrase that would have been associated with Roman political propaganda. Okay, so some of you guys know this. Uh, archaeologists keep finding coins that were minted by Rome back from the first century. And uh, what's interesting is back in, this, in Roman times, coins were not just currency. They were more than currency. They also were like miniature portable billboards that contained political propaganda on them. And so, you know, you would see your money every day and it'd be a reminder to you. And so Rome would print messages that would kind of, kind of uh, promote political propaganda for the Roman Empire. And what's fascinating is if you look at the coins that were minted by the Roman government, the two most common phrases that you will often find on those coins is the word pox, which means peace. Some of you know that. And the other one is securitas, which means safety or it means security. So the Romans would often say this, peace and security, peace and security. The Roman government is gonna give you peace and security. They actually, had, um, they actually had monuments that were erected that would say peace and security on them. So basically, here was the mentality. The mentality was this, as long as Rome is in power, and as long as you have enough money in your bank or in your pocket, then you will have peace and security. You'll have peace and security. Now, let me ask you a question. That was 2,000 years ago. Today, does that sound familiar to anybody now? I think, I think the mentality continues to persist that there are many who will say, as long as we have the right political party in office, and as long as I have enough money in the bank, there's peace and there's security. Now, I want you to hear me. Um, it is very important, very important that followers of Jesus care about politics. It's very important that followers of Jesus care about money. We talk about those things. Jesus talks about those things. We should care about those things. But I want you to hear me. If those things become the location of our peace and our security, the Apostle Paul is gonna say, we need to be careful because those things are gonna be ripped out from under us. Those places are false places to put your hope and your sense of security. So while the people are saying peace and security, peace and security, he says that this day is gonna come suddenly. In fact, do you know that Jesus, let me, let me show you what Jesus Christ himself said about the day, about the day of the Lord. Here's what he said. Because these are sobering words. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah. Some of you are like, what were the days of Noah? So you might remember the flood, Genesis 6. You can read about it. So in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So what were happening in the days of Noah? Well, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered into the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. Then he says this, in the same, uh, it was the same in the days of Lot. Some of you are like, what were the days of Lot? Those are the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. What were people doing then? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Now look what he says. This is what Jesus says. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, like I said, if you guys have never read those passages of Noah and the flood and of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
I'm just going to tell you, I'll be honest with you, they are troubling passages. They are troubling. And what do you see happening on those days? That is a day of both redemption and it is a day of judgment. It's a day of both of those things. And Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like on that day. Now, you guys, I feel like maybe this is a good spot for me to just take a moment and address something. I think that there's probably, maybe for a lot of us, I don't know how many of us, but maybe some of us or many of us in this room, for some of us, we have a hard time when we start talking about the idea of a God who judges. I think for some of us, we have a difficult time when we think about passages like Noah and the flood, and we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, and when we talk about Jesus returning and there being judgment on the wicked, I think sometimes we have a really hard time with that, because I think for some of us, we have a very difficult time justifying in our minds how God could be a God of forgiveness and love and compassion, and at the same time, could be a God of justice and judgment, and we have a hard time justifying those two things. And I just want you to know, that makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. In fact, in some ways, I share the same tension when I read through the scripture, if I was being totally honest with you. But I think that if you actually stop and you think about it, I mean, really think about it logically, which I wanna invite you to do with me here in just a moment. Here's what I believe, and I'm convinced of this. I believe that what we actually fear more than a God of justice and judgment is we fear a God of no justice and no judgment. I think that's what we probably would fear more. You're like, what do you mean by that? How do you mean? Well, here's what I mean, you guys. If there is no justice in the universe, if there is no justice in the world, that means that all of us are, all of us are just victims of the whims of, of wicked people who would do whatever. And it doesn't take very long. I don't think it takes long for any of us, my goodness, to be overcome with a sense of sickening frustration and injustice when we see some of the terrible things that we do to each other as humans. I mean, you guys, if we just took a sampling, just a sample from the last seven to 14 days, I'm not, I'm not talking about thousands of years. I'm just talking about the last seven to 14 days. If we just took a sampling from uh, our own state, Ohio, I'm not talking about the whole world. I'm just talking about our little state, our state of Ohio. If you just took a sampling of some of the injustices that we have seen in that small period of time, it's enough for us to cry out and say, we want justice. I'll just give you... One example, I was looking in the news like many of you do in this past week in our own state in the past seven to 14 days, a man who was arrested for raping two girls who were under the age of 12. And you read about it, and you guys know, I'm not trying to be sensational. This stuff is stuff that we see. This is just the last couple of weeks. This isn't even all of human history. And there's things that when we see stuff like this, it causes us to say there has to be justice. There has to be judgment. Something has to be done because that's wrong, because that's not right. And listen, my hope is that what you see is that the Bible's gonna say that day will come. The day of the Lord will come. There will be justice and there will be judgment. God will deal with every sin and God will deal with every wickedness and he will make things as they should be. That will happen. But I think, once again, if you really stop and think about it, What that means is this. That means that if God is gonna deal with every sin and God is gonna deal with every wickedness, that means that every one of us is in big trouble. That every one of us is doomed. And why is that? Because it's not like the evil in the world is just out there. Every single one of us are contributors to the brokenness and to the the sin that we see in the world. Every single one of us. Now, you may not have murdered a person, 
I don't know, maybe you have, I don't know. But, but every time we lie or every time we cheat or every time we steal or we act in a prideful way where we put our needs above other people, we are contributing to the brokenness that we see in the world. So here, here's the thing. If God is gonna deal with every sin and every wickedness, that means that he has to deal with us as well. Now, my hope is that when you think that all the way through, you can start to see why it is that Jesus came. Why did God send his son? Because God is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment, but he is a God of mercy. And he has provided a way of salvation for us. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we should have died. And then he rose victoriously that in the same way that those who were in the ark were saved on the day of the flood, those who have their faith in Christ are saved on the day of the Lord. And so it's those who are in Christ, who have their faith in Christ, who are saved. Which actually brings us to the third thing. So, so what, do we, what do we know? Here's what we know, right? We know uh, that we don't know when it's coming. We know that it is coming. So what do we do? What should we do? How should we live? Here's how we should live. We should live in light. We should live in light of his coming. Uh, it's interesting. If you look at the next verse uh, in this passage, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul uses another metaphor. He uses another illustration. And the illustration he uses is that of a pregnant woman. So he says that this day is going to come suddenly like the labor pains on a pregnant woman. Uh, this is actually an illustration the Bible uses for the, coming of, the second coming of Jesus in other places. So Jesus uses the same illustration in Matthew chapter 24. But I think, I think you guys, I think this is a really helpful metaphor if you think about it for a minute. So just, just think about this with me for a second. Okay, so um, a, pregnant, a pregnant woman, okay? What exactly is going on with a pregnant woman? That, that was probably a really bad way to ask that question. So let me, let me rephrase that. What is a pregnant woman experiencing? That's a better, way better way to say that, okay? So what is she experiencing? Well, a lot of things. She's experiencing a lot of things, but here's one thing that we know for sure. She is living with an ever-growing, constant reminder of an imminent event. And I say that again. She is living with an ever-growing, constant reminder of an imminent event. So when a pregnant woman goes into labor, is she surprised? Yeah, I mean, kind of, but not totally, right? She's not like, what's happening? She's like, no, I know it's happening. I saw it coming. There was a nine-month growing reminder that this was something that was going to take place. So is it a surprise? Kind of, kind of not. So it's anticipated, but it's not totally entirely known when it's going to take place. So when a woman finds out that she's pregnant, what does she do? Does she start obsessing over when the day and the hour is going to be that the baby is born? I think it's going to be 7.53 on September the 29th. I think that's going to... Is that what she begins to become obsessed with? No. No. What does she do? She starts to prepare. She begins to live in light of a future reality. What does she do? Her and her husband start painting stuff. She starts painting the nursery. They have a baby shower, right? She gets a diaper genie, you know, heated baby wipe thing, which I never had when I was a kid. You know, they get all this stuff. They start looking into college savings to prepare for this future reality. She starts nesting. She starts going through the process. And by the way, think about this. When a expecting mother is nesting, what is she doing? Here's what she's doing. She is preparing her current reality for the future anticipated reality to come. And you guys, this is exactly what we're talking about in this series. You know, 1 Thessalonians, we, the tagline is kingdom living in the present. What are we talking about? We're talking about living today in light of a future reality that is to come. 
And so how do followers of Jesus live in light of the second coming? So what does it mean for us to live in light of that day? Does that mean that we should build bunkers and store away like canned goods and water? Is that what we should do? No. Here's what I think it means. I think the apostle Paul is gonna tell us. So look what he says next. He says this. He says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, let me just say, Paul's using a lot of different metaphors here. He talks about day and night. He talks about um, light and darkness. He talks about drunkenness and sobriety. He uses a lot. And there's a lot we could say about that. But if I could just, in simplest terms, try to summarize what I think it is that Paul is saying here, I would put it this way. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is we have to live in light of and we have to live alert to this day. So followers of Jesus, how do we live? We live in light of, it's coming. We live alert and alertness to this day. Or I like the way another commentator put it. Another commentator said it this way. We have to live ready and steady. So we don't know when it's gonna happen, but we know that it's gonna happen. So we need to be ready and we need to be steady. Ready and steady lives. Now, some of you are like, what does that even mean? How, how does that how does that actually change the way I live? Okay, so maybe here's the best way to think about it. All right, I want you to think about, this with me for, think about it this way with me for just a second. Let's say that I was able to tell you today with 100% certainty that Jesus Christ was gonna come back one year from today. What if I could tell you, what if I said, listen, September 10th, 2024, Jesus is coming back. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that, all right? So I'm not predicting it. I don't even own a hen. All right, so let's just get that out of the way. But let's say September, 24, or September 10th, 2024, Jesus is gonna return. Now, here's my question. If you knew that with 100% certainty, when you walk out of here, how would you live different in light of that? So, so here's a question. What relationships would you need to mend that have been left unresolved? What conversations do you feel like you would need to have who would you need to get cups of coffee with to, to talk to the whatever, to share, maybe even the hope that you have with them? Maybe think about this. What patterns in your life exist today that if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back in one year, you're like, I have to change that pattern because I need to be prepared when Jesus returns. Um, how about this one? What concerns and priorities are taking the bulk of your time and attention that if you found out that Jesus was coming back next year, suddenly those things would diminish. What would take place in your heart and your mind? Now, let me ask you this question. What if I told you Jesus was coming back next month, 30 days from today? What if I told you he was coming back tonight? What would that do? Now, here's the point. The point is we don't know when it's gonna take place, but we know that it's gonna take place. So how do we live? We live ready and we live steady. Here's the point, you guys. I think the point is this. It's easy for followers of Jesus to fall asleep, quote unquote, to the reality of Jesus's return. It's easy for us to drift off, to, to kind of be lulled to sleep by the pleasures and pursuits of this world that all of a sudden we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I think what he's saying is, look, we gotta, we gotta wake each other up every once in a while. We, hey, he's coming back. We gotta be reminded of this day that Jesus Christ will return. I love uh, what one author said. His name is Ligon Duncan. He said this. He said, we prepare ourselves not by predictions about when Jesus is coming back, but we prepare ourselves by the pursuit 
of godliness. That's how we do it. We live our lives in light of this reality. I think the same idea you see in verse eight. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, apparently the apostle Paul really loves metaphors because now he gives us another metaphor. And the metaphor he gives us here is a military metaphor. I don't know if you notice, but it's one of armor. But here's what I want you to notice. What Paul says is, he says that the day of the Lord should produce three things in the life of a follower of Jesus. And what are those three things? He says it should provide, it should produce faith, love, and hope. That the hope of Jesus' coming should produce three things in the life of a follower of Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. And you guys, I think all three of those things are important. Here's what I think Paul's telling us. The day of the Lord, for those of us who have our faith in Christ, should produce faith and not fear. It should produce faith and not fear. Uh, Pastor Seth talked about this at length last week, so I'm not gonna re-preach his sermon. But here's the point, though. I think if you're a follower of Christ and the day of the Lord personally produces hysteria, anxiety, and panic within you, I think that shows there's probably something amiss. For those who put their faith in Christ, this is a day of anticipation. This is a day that we, that we are secure in because of who Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. This is a day that should produce hope and not despair. Hope and not despair. So again, if um, Jesus' return, um, if thinking about that doesn't change the perspective of how we view the current reality around us, I think it shows that there's something amiss. I think it's easy sometimes to look around at the world. It's easy to look around at the world affairs And it's easy for us to be filled with a sense of despair or hopelessness or some kind of nihilistic pessimism. But I think for followers of Jesus, listen, we know, we know that it's not always going to be this way. And so even though we see injustice and we see brokenness and we see death and we see disease, even though we mourn and we grieve those things as we should, we don't do it without hope because we know he's gonna restore all things. That's the ultimate destiny. And it should produce love, not apathy. Love, not apathy. Listen, if the anticipation of the day of the Lord causes followers of Jesus to further disengage from relationships, if it causes followers of Jesus to grow in indifference or disdain to the world and the people around us, I think it's clear that something is amiss. This is a day that should cause an urgency within us to love and to love well, to care for people and to tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Appreciate what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they've become so ineffective. And this one, I think he's right. I think the hope of eternity, the hope of Christ's return should make us more loving, not less. It should make us more engaged, not less. It should make us more productive in this world, not less, and it should make us more eager to live the kind of life that God desires for us. So let me close with this. I wanna close with the last two verses, and then I wanna address a couple different audiences and we're done. Last two verses. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. So basically what he just said there is he's saying, this is the hope that those of us who follow Jesus have in life and death. What is our hope? That Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and that he's coming again. That is our hope in life or death. And he says, so remind each other and encourage each other of these things. So 
Let me just end by addressing two different audiences and then we'll pray and be done. So let me talk first to those who follow Jesus. Those who would say you have placed your faith in Christ, you're a Christian, you're someone who has placed your hope in salvation in Jesus Christ. I think for those of us who follow Christ, what we should do with this message is, listen, I think that this should be a reminder to us that we need to encourage each other with these words. We need to remind each other that, hey, we don't know when this day is coming, but we know that it's coming. So we should live in light of the fact that it's coming. I actually love, some of you guys know this, uh, there's a word, uh, uh, it's actually an Aramaic word, it's called Maranatha. You maybe have heard that word before. Uh, some of you maybe have even been part of churches that were called Maranatha. Uh, but I don't know if you know what the word means. The word Maranatha literally means, come, O Lord. That's what it means. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, O Lord. And what's interesting is uh, historians will point out that uh, in the first century, the early church would use this as a watchword, and they would use it as a greeting. So when they greeted each other, Maranatha, Maranatha. And when they said goodbye to each other, when they said farewell, they'd say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. O come, Lord. Now, why did they do that? Here's why because they were encouraging each other and they were reminding each other, hey, hey, we don't know when it's coming, but we know that it's coming. So let's live in light of it's coming. Maranatha, Maranatha. You know, I think that this is actually something that we've kind of lost sight of as a church. I'm not saying that we need to say Maranatha to each other, but I think it's important that we encourage each other to, to this day, to this day, that it's coming. Audience number two, I just want to speak to those who are investigating Jesus. So if you're someone who would say that you're not a Christian, you have never put your faith in Christ, or maybe for you, you're someone who's still trying to piece it all together. Now, I just want to tell you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you guys, we say this a lot, but I just, I just mean this with 100% of my being. I count it, we count it, such a privilege and such an honor that you would allow us to be part of your spiritual journey. And you could do anything you want with your time and with your energy, and you can go anywhere to any church, anywhere online. And the fact that you would let us be part of your spiritual journey is one we don't take lightly. So thank you, genuinely, thank you. And I don't know where you are with all this. You might be hearing this, and it might be the first time you've ever heard anything like this. For some of you, quite honestly, you've heard about this stuff, and it just kind of freaks you out. Some of you are like, this stuff is kooky. I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is that you're pretty attractive. But outside of that... I don't know about this Jesus stuff, all right? That might be you, all right? Now, I just wanna speak, if you're someone who's investigating Jesus, I just wanna speak carefully, but I also wanna speak honestly with you. I just wanna be very honest with you, okay? And I'm not, I'm not saying any of this to scare you. Please hear me. I'm not trying to scare you, but I need to shoot you straight, okay? So I'm just gonna shoot you straight. Based on what I am convinced the Bible teaches and what God has revealed to us about himself, this day, the day of the Lord, okay, for those who have put their faith in Christ is one that produces faith, hope, and love. But for those who stiff-arm Jesus, for those who perpetually resist and reject him, so I just want you to know that this day, I believe, is going to be utterly terrifying. It's a terrifying day. And, and I want to be as clear as I can. Please hear me. It's not that, listen, it's not this. It's not that good people get redeemed and bad people get destroyed. That's not it. It's this. All have sinned and fall short.
I don't know why Jesus has not returned yet. I don't know all the reasons. That's for God to know. But can I tell you that I know one reason why he hasn't returned yet? And, and the scripture tells us, and I'll just show it to you. Second Peter chapter three, talking about the day of the Lord. The Lord is not slow. He's not being slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. What is he doing then? He's being patient. Why? Because he doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to. But instead, he wants you to repent, to turn to him and be saved. So I can tell you one reason that Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet. If you're a person who's investigating Jesus, here it is. One of the reasons he hasn't returned is because of you. He doesn't want heaven without you. And so he wants you to turn to him and he's being patient. The Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, you guys, it tells us that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in that, but he wants that everyone would turn to him. And so listen, I just, I just want you to know that this is what the scripture says. He is patient, but then look what Peter says next. But the day will come. It will, it will come. Listen, even though Jesus' return has been long awaited, we cannot believe that that guarantees that we have more time because we might not. And so listen, I just, I just wanna tell you that I believe the most loving thing that I could do if you're a person who's investigating Jesus is to give you an opportunity to say yes to Christ, to stop investigating him and to start following him. Listen, here's the truth. You might not have another year to investigate. You might not have months to invest. You might not have tomorrow to investigate. And so I feel like as I was preparing for this message, the most loving thing I could do is give you an opportunity to respond to Christ. So here's what we're gonna do. You guys, I'm actually gonna ask the band to come up and we're gonna do something that I'm just telling you, we don't, we don't really ever do this here, all right? But I feel like it, it's sort of what we need to do in light of what we see in the passage. So if you come back next week, if you're like, do they do this every week? No, we don't do this every week. I just feel like this is what we need to do today. What I wanna ask is I wanna ask you to do this. I wanna ask everybody in the room, if you would please bow your heads and close your eyes with me just right now in this moment. I wanna ask that you would bow your heads and you close your eyes with me, all right? Now in a moment, I wanna speak to those who are investigating Jesus. And I actually wanna give you an opportunity. I wanna give you an opportunity to do something very bold. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make a decision to stop investigating Jesus and to start following him. And I, listen, I understand for some of you, like there's still questions, there's still lingering thoughts that you have and, and those kind of things, and that's okay. Listen, I'm just telling you, following Jesus takes faith. But maybe for you, you're a person that you've been, man, you've been investigating Jesus and God has been preparing you for this moment and you know that you're ready to take this step, but you know it takes courage. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you in just a moment, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you that if you are a person who wants to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would literally and you would physically stand to your feet. I'm gonna ask you that in just a second. If you're physically unable to stand for any reason, I'm just gonna ask you, raise your hand. And that's the same for those of you online. I'm gonna ask you to do the same. Now, I'm gonna ask you to do something bold. I'm gonna ask you to do something that takes action on your part to make a decisive decision to say, I am going to go all in for Jesus. I am going to say yes to him. The investigation stops 
and my journey with him begins. Now I know, listen, I know when I say that. Some of you right now, your heart is just pounding in your chest for a couple different reasons. Maybe for some of you, your heart is pounding because you know that the Holy Spirit is getting your attention. He's talking to you. And for some of you, you know it's a step that you need to take and you know that God has been preparing you for it. And maybe you feel that sense of uh, just that, that your heart racing because of it. For some of you, maybe the reason your heart is racing is that even though everyone's eyes are closed and everyone's not, you're just afraid of what other people are gonna think. If you, the people you came with, your parents, your kids, your, the friends that you came, you're afraid of what they're going to think. And I just wanna encourage you, that doesn't matter. Okay. What matters is what God is doing in your heart and in your life right now. So on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you if you're ready to take this step, everyone keep your eyes closed. I'm just gonna ask you to stand to your feet on the count of three. One, two, three. Stand up right now if you wanna say yes to Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Stand up right now if you wanna say yes to Christ. You're not promised tomorrow. Praise Jesus. You guys stay standing. Everyone keep your eyes closed. In a moment, I'm just gonna pray for you. And I actually wanna ask you that if you have someone who said yes to Jesus today. I wanna to ask you after the service is done, there's gonna be some folks from our pastoral team. They're gonna be hanging out in this corner over here. And we'd love to pray with you and meet with you and talk to you about next steps in following Jesus. But I wanna pray over you in just a moment. I'm gonna ask, keep your eyes closed. I'm gonna ask the entire congregation if you would stand to your feet right now. Everyone in the congregation, let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we just wanna say thank you for your grace and your kindness to us that you are a God of justice, you are. You're perfectly just, but you are a God of mercy who has sent your son, Jesus Christ, to provide a way for us to spend eternity with you, to be redeemed and to be resurrected. Jesus, we praise you for those who stood today, who made a bold proclamation of faith to follow you with their life. God, I wanna pray over them right now. And I ask you that the decision that they made would be secured in their heart. Jesus, we pray that you would fill them with faith, even right now, to continue to follow you. Lord, we long await your coming. We anticipate the day that you, you come. Help us to live in light of that day, Father, with faith, hope, and love in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Yes, can we just, uh, together, can we just celebrate those who uh, said yes to Jesus today? Praise God. Jesus is the one who saves, and we're going to have a chance to now worship and sing to the Jesus, the one who saves us. So let's sing together.